kids are dismissed to our, our kids' ministry for Bible Adventures and uh, the nursery as well, although we love to have them in here if they want to stay and listen to an awesome sermon, they can do that. Um, we've been uh, continuing our series on diversity where we're thinking about uh, what it is to be a diverse community, what it is to um, value that, to, to think through that, why diversity matters to God. And as I have said previously in this series, I think it's just so important for us to think about. I think that we all like the idea of diverse community, but the question is, do you actually practice it? Because loving everyone everywhere is a great way to actually not really love anyone anywhere. We love people, we love diversity, but then the question I would ask is, well, then how are you participating in it? And I hope that steps on your toes and makes you think about because it, it's a constant thing. You have to continue to, to put, put yourself out there and continue to value that. And I think it's so important for us as um, Americans especially, to think about what we're going to talk about uh, today. Because I think that something that is a little bit in somewhat of the cultural air that we breathe as Americans is we think that being American is the best way to be. Like the way that America runs things, the way that things are. Like we think if the world, there's this idea that if the world could just practice like politics, for example, the way that we do, maybe this was before our political thing now, but if the world could just practice, you know, democracy, if we could just like hit a magic wand and give everybody democracy, then they would be better. You know, the world would be a better place. I remember I was traveling with Mandy somewhere and we were reading a guidebook for that place. And one of the opening pages said, one thing that traveling does is it helps you to recognize that there are people around the world who wouldn't trade their life for yours. And I remember being like, whoa. Huh. And I was like, wow, I guess I was really arrogant before reading that statement. Like, there are people who wouldn't trade their passport for yours. And this isn't just around, like, economic lines, like those who are rich or those who are poor. It's just there are certain people who they would probably say, you know what, I like your life, but I'll take mine. And one of the things that I think is, is a weakness in America uh, today and really has been part of our, our roots is the sense of um, communal identity. So there's certain cultures around the world that we think is, are almost weird in the way that they honor their family, right? The way they honor perhaps grandparents. Not that we don't grand, honor grandparents at all, but the way that certain cultures identify there are certain places in the world that they identify themselves first as like son or daughter of this person. And that's completely lost here. We don't really identify ourselves um, in that way. We don't necessarily think of ourselves first in the way that our, our community perhaps is identified. And that perhaps is even at the roots of this country. There's a book by Sebastian Younger called Tribe. And in this book, he writes about the dangers of tribalism and the ways that we can kind of get too focused in on our, our own way of thinking and not perhaps expand that out into a more diverse uh, setting. And so he tells a story that I, I had never even heard of when in the late 1700s, for the, one of the first times in human history, there's these two very distinct groups of people living somewhat together, the colonists that settled um, in the United States and the Native Americans and natives um, who were here. And there becomes this very interesting problem that he writes about in Tribe. I'd really recommend checking out the book. It's fantastic that I had never heard of before. Um, Benjamin Franklin, in a letter dated May 9th, 1753, says this, when white persons of either sex have been taken prisoners by the Indians and lived a while among 
among them, though ransomed by their friends and treated with all imaginable tenderness to prevail with them to stay among the English, yet in a short time they become disgusted with our manner of life, the care and pains that are necessary to support it, and take the first good opportunity of escaping again into the wilderness." And there's another man whose name is French, who I won't try to pronounce, who writes a letter at this time. It says this, There must be in the Indian social bond something singularly captivating and far superior to be boasted of among us. For thousands of Europeans are Indians, and we have no examples of even one of those aborigines having from choice become European. So there's a lot who are going from our side to theirs, but it ain't happening the other way around. There's a lot that when they see, even if they were prisoners with this group of people, once they're given back, they're hightailing it as soon as they can to get back over there. The question that you might have is, well, why is that? And I think that that second letter by that long-named French guy has something to do with it. I think one of the great things about the United States is that we value independence, we value individuality, we value you know, having your own rights and your own sense of identity, and in a lot of ways, that's great. But I think it makes us lonely that we don't have a sense of being part of a larger community, a larger group of people, And unfortunately, it seems, sociologists would say that one of the defining traits in Western cultures, so parts of Europe and in the United States, is extreme individualism. And it's not necessarily working out all that well for us. Theresa May, who is a prime minister um, in the UK, um, they recently, in the last year, appointed a loneliness minister to deal with the problem of the loneliness in their nation. That people are all, you know, somewhat connected, but not really having deep connection. And so in the inauguration of that person, she said, for far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. For far too many people, loneliness is the sad reality of modern life. And I think it's a very complex problem, one that's not necessarily easy to solve. But we all, as a community, I hope, recognize the the need to be together. Studies have shown that active participation in some sort of community, whatever that happens to look like for you, is unbelievably healthy. That being isolated and feeling like you're alone in the world is worse than smoking 15 cigarettes a day for your health. I've heard it said that if you're in a, a, a bad marriage, then it's really helpful if you have good friends around you. And if you have a really good marriage, it's not necessarily going to go that well if you don't have friends who are around you. I've heard a minister said to, to me many years ago, he said that it would be better, like I'd take the odds of a marriage being successful for a longer term if it's a bad marriage, but the person has, in the, on each side of the couple has like good friends, good supportive friends around them. Because we all need friends. We need community. 
But one of the issues is we don't necessarily have the time for it. But spending time in community and being committed to each other matters. And I think it's something that Jesus models for us. He's gathering people. He's gathering a diverse community. We've talked before about one thing that that Jesus does that should be unbelievable to us is that he gathers this, this group of people, and one of them is a zealot. And a zealot thought that what was best uh, for the Jewish people was to overthrow Rome. So that's like the ideal. You need to just do whatever it is to overthrow this Roman oppression. So a zealot would have thought that. And then along with a zealot, you have a tax collector named Matthew. Now a zealot would have absolutely hated a tax collector because the tax collector represented everything that they were trying to overthrow. And Jesus says, basically, let's hang out together. Imagine how awkward some of those dinners were. And for the zealot, there would have been times where he would have thought, you know, hey, Jesus, you should like tell Matthew to fix some stuff about his life. And Jesus was probably like, and you need to fix some stuff about your life too. Let's all work on this together. It actually statistically shows that if you're in a certain sort of community, it almost doesn't matter what sort of adversity you're facing. That as long as you have people who are around you, people that care about you, people that are going to continue to check up on you, you can conquer almost anything. In fact, very oddly, there was a study done in the UK that when Nazi bombardment was happening in London, as bombs were being dropped during World War II in London, rates of depression went down, which seems crazy. Because it'd be a very anxious time. It'd be filled with like, just wondering, you know, how is this going to go? But it brought people together. And I'm not hoping that happens here. I'm not saying, like, let's, let's root for this. But what if we could be a community and a place where people are known and loved without forcing some external force to force us to do that? Because deep community relationship and friendship matters. And Jesus invites us all to make this a priority. There's a very odd story. If you're just reading through the Gospel of Luke, you'd be very confused if you didn't have a little bit of context. Maybe you've read this before. So Jesus says to a guy in Luke chapter 9, follow me. But the guy says, Lord, let me go and bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Like, this is one of those you go, Jesus, did you wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning? Like, come on now, man, that's a little harsh. Like, let the dead bury their own dead. But if you actually understand what he's, what he's saying here, it makes a little bit more sense. What he's saying is, let me go and, and bury my father. And what he's saying is, let me go back and, and, and honor my father, basically. And my dad, it's basically assumed the dad is not dead. It's not like, like, let me go, you know, finish his funeral service. What he's saying is, let me be around my father until he dies, at which point then I will have honored my father and I will have done this thing correctly. For example, we see in the story of the prodigal son. One of the reasons the story of the prodigal son is is so shocking and alarming is that the son comes to the dad and says, give me the inheritance that you owe me. And that was a way of almost saying, dad, I wish you were dead because... I don't really want to have connection with you anymore. And so it was the thing to do that, to be with your dad and and honor uh, your dad and make that a a priority. And I think this is something that Jesus would say is is important. But what Jesus is, is saying here is, 
no, just skip the burial. What he's saying is, no, no, no. Yeah, you have this thing that is an obligation that's probably important to you, but your number one priority and commitment should be to following me. Your number one commitment should be to following the path of life that that I am inviting you to be on. And so, don't let that be an excuse. Your dad might be alive for another five years, might be alive for another 10 years. Don't let that be an excuse. Let this be the place. Let me, the way of life that I'm inviting you into, let that be the place that you are committed to. So make this a high priority. And this is a really hard teaching, right? I mean, we like to think of Jesus as, as the love guy and really nice, but he's saying, make my community, make following me the most important priority in your life. And that should be a challenge for any of us at any given moment in our lives because we have to raise our hands and be honest and say, well, like, I'm not necessarily doing that in all the correct ways, right? And hopefully it's something that we go, okay, I, I need to, to recenter and refocus. Like, I, I do want to make following Jesus a high priority. I want to make a commitment to this. There's another story that's interesting that happens towards the end of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 27, there's this conversation uh, that happens. It should be the next slide, Simon, right? Yeah. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her own sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it that you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So this is a very odd story. A couple of the disciples' mom comes to Jesus and says, hey, can we talk about this? And the disciples are like, you got your mom to do it? Come on, how lame is that, basically? But the rest of the ten, they're not angry for the right reasons. They're angry because this mom has asked, and it's like, oh, that was a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Like, well, yeah, let, let's figure out who, who's going to sit at, at the right and the left of, of Jesus. That's a really great, yeah, man, why would you have to get your mom to do it? That's so annoying. But then Jesus gathers them all together, basically, and then he's like, all right, guys, this is a teachable moment. Let's, uh, come on, everybody gather in here. And he says to them, the way that we live, the community that I'm building, is not like every other community. So out there, he specifically says, the Gentiles, like, they live with a certain sense of, of power and obligation. And yes, like, certain people are honored and certain people aren't. But let me tell you, I'm building a different kind of community. A place that isn't about who has the most power or who has the most education or who has the most money or who has the most of anything. I'm not building a place like that. I'm building a community where we're basically trying to give power away, where we gather together and we think about how we can be sacrificial. And what if you could live in a community like that? 
And there are some ways that I feel like I, I see that as, as our church, as, as I see what we're trying to do. There are ways that I think we're doing this well, but also ways that I think we all could grow in this area. What if we just formed a community where our goal was to just outserve each other? Instead of making it about different things that are honored in different places, Jesus says to this community, he says, let's, let's not argue about who gets the nice seat with me in the kingdom of God. What you are living for should be completely different than that. What we are doing, he's saying together, what we are doing as a community, we're doing something completely different. There are some ways, again, that, that I see this here, that we aren't a place that honors a certain race or a certain gender or a certain job or a certain whatever above another. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the diversity that we have. Because unfortunately, many churches are almost just like one group of the same kind of people. This may sound a little harsh, but at times, I want to say to those groups, I'm not sure what you're doing is church. Because if you only have like one age group, or one racial background, I don't think what you're doing is church. Because Jesus is gathering a different group of people together. And it's going to be challenge, challenging. Ashland doesn't agree with that, I guess. Uh, it's going to be, going to be a, a challenge for us as we think about how we grow together. And being actually in a diverse group of people is difficult. I love how Christina Cleveland says this. She says, if you are in a diverse community, you're going to be offended 100% of the time. And I don't know if it's going to be quite that high because honestly, I'm so blessed by the community uh, that we have here. But ultimately, we have to be willing to spend time with people who are different than us. We have to be willing to sometimes accept and talk through difficult issues. There's going to be times where we have to struggle together with what it looks like for us to continue to be a diverse community. But I think it's so beautiful when, when we see it, when we practice it together. Because I get, think we get to grow with God. There's a great book that was recently released by Sherry Turkle, and she talks about um, having conversations that we don't necessarily do a good job of listening to each other. We maybe talk at each other, but not actually with each other anymore. And she says in this book, she says, face-to-face conversation is the most human and humanizing thing we do. Fully present to one another, we learn to listen. It's where we experience the joy of being heard and understood. And I hope as a church, we create spaces and have opportunities for us to have these kind of moments where we have face-to-face, real, live conversations with each other. Because unfortunately, there's just not enough of it in our world today. I was thinking, or I was doing some, some reading about this idea, and the author was arguing that even doing something that doesn't even sound that hard, but as like knowing someone's name, is an unbelievable blessing. If you meet someone and you know their name the first time and then you actually get to see them again and you speak their name to them. It's almost a lost art in our world. Basically, everyone I know says, I'm not good with names. What if you got good? What if you did a good job of paying attention? 
What if you said, you know what, this is a little bit hard for me, but, you know, after we actually have the technology to do it, we can go right away from a conversation, write that person's name, and for, for a little while just try and get that right. What if we could be a community that put others first? And just as Jesus has to gather his disciples after mom comes in and messes that conversation up, what if we could be a place where we just said, we try our best to just give our power away and love people and bless people. This is the community. This is who we are trying to be. Because it's beautiful when we see it. But I admit that it's hard. And I think a, a big part of my job is to be a community organizer to be uh, somebody who has, has events and does things that hopefully helps us to get outside of ourselves, to serve in the ways that we serve, but also just to be a community together. And I got to admit, at times that job is frustrating and hard. And I don't want to make you feel guilty or step on your toes too much, but I told my friend recently, I feel like I'm trying to get people to make commitments in a commitmentless generation. And it's a challenge at times. Statistically, there's a decline in sort of all sense of of community involvement. And specifically in churches, what people are finding is that people, it's not necessarily that people are, like generally in the grand scope, are attending church less. Actually, around the same number of people say that they go to church. So people aren't, it's not like there's a massive decline in, in church attendance from people. But what's happening is people are attending church less. That sounds a little weird. But those who go to church, go to church less. Let me put it that way. So your best volunteers, your best church members uh, several years ago, not even that long ago, used to come to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You would be like at these things. You'd be active and your best people were there, you know, four Sundays out of the month. And statistically what's happening is, again, this is across the board. It's not just in churches. Across the board, what's happening is people are just attending, even for Sunday morning, less that those who used to be the best volunteers were there pretty much every Sunday. Now it's more like every two or three Sundays are like the best of the best of your people. And I don't tell you that to make you feel guilty or to think, wow, Brian, thanks a lot for that one. Because I really don't. I mean, I, it's, Brian just really wants more people at church. No, it's really, it's really not about that. And I think guilt is a horrible motivation for change. But I think you're missing something. I think you're missing out on what we can do together if you're able to participate a little bit more. Because again, we live in a world where the UK just appointed loneliness minister. And so there's no shame in admitting and raising your hand a little bit and saying, you know what, I'm lonely at times. Great. We have a church for you. We have a place you can come. We have activities every single, it's every single month that we hope that you can participate in and grow in fellowship together. So again, I don't tell you this to make you feel guilty. But I tell you this so you won't feel so alone. Because the truth is, you're not. 
One of the great blessings that I get as a minister is the opportunity to interact with you people all the time. And it's such a blessing for me to, to know your stories, to know what's going on in your life, to learn interesting things about you, to hear about like your, your life and, and your experience and what it is that you're going through. And it's such a blessing for me. I hope that you'd make time to experience the same thing. I hope you don't miss it. Because being in community is one of the most sacred things that we could be in. So in this Gospels, I think we see ways that God grows in us. A couple weeks ago I shared this, but I want to continue to share this uh, during this series. That we see that, that growth happens at two different spaces in the scriptures. So Jesus is often around people. He has crowds all the time. But then there's moments when he goes, thanks crowds, you know, all my healing. I've really done a lot of great stuff. But now I'm going to solitude and silence. I'm going to walk away and spend time with God. Because if I was allowed myself to, I could totally spend all my time doing this stuff. But I'm going to walk away and I'm going to go spend time with God. But then also we see growth and transformation on the other end of deep community where we have like real relationships with people. And sometimes it's about learning things from each other and growing ourselves. And it's about like spending time and making commitments. And what I think is scary about our world today is we spend time in neither place. We don't spend much time in solitude and silence. And we don't spend much time in like deep, real community when we're challenged. We spend a lot of time at the the center of those things. We don't necessarily like the silence. We have so many ways to not deal with silence. And then when it comes to actually showing up and being involved in, in community, sometimes that's hard and it's challenging and we just walk away from it. And I'm not just trying to preach this to you. I feel the same thing at times. That when things get difficult in a relationship or a community, it's just easy for me to be like, all right, I'm out of that one. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to continue to pursue that. There's a great quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a fantastic book called Life Together. And he says this. It's a little bit complex, but I'll break it down so we understand what he's saying. The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual, to an individual and to a community, the better for both. What he's saying is eventually there's a time that whatever community that you're involved in, it's going to be a little hard. Like whether you're in a community at a church or whether you're in a, the Elks Club, whatever community you're involved in, there's going to be some times when it's going to be hard for you because there's certain people who drive you crazy. And there's probably certain people who you drive crazy. And so the sooner that you at one point recognize that there's going to be some disillusionment eventually with this is actually better. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion which, when it should be shattered permanently, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to the genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Someone who loves the dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his or her personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. So let me break that down because it's a little thick. What he's saying is there's ways for you to love the idea of something more than actually the real thing. 
oftentimes I think this happens in family. We have a couple kids, and so we'll go and, and be super excited because we think that our son or daughter is going to love going to this, like, one place, and then you actually go there with them, and they're not super excited about it, perhaps, or everybody's crying, or everybody's upset. So we love the idea of the thing, but not necessarily are we willing to, to go through the difficulty of the thing. And so we're part of a community for a while, and that one hurts us. And so we go and join a different community, and that one hurts us. And so we go and join another community, and that one hurts us. And we go, oh, man, the, the, the world is just so wrong. We don't do the hard work of asking, how was I part of that? My friend as a minister in Texas, he says this, if you crave being part of something authentic and real, but avoid conflict at all costs, you probably won't ever find something authentic and real, and you'll only be more deeply embedded in the illusion that no one else is authentic and real. If you want to be part of real community, transformative community, and you need to do some hard work, You need to recognize that at times, it's in the intimate, real community that we learn really important things about ourselves. I came across an article recently about George Clooney, who keeps the um, Batman suit from the Batman and Robin movie in his office. I don't know if you're familiar with that movie, but it was a flop. Batman and Robin, it was horrible. It basically set the Batman franchise back 15 years until Christopher Nolan came and saved it. And with the, that, the reason why he has that Batman suit in his office is because it reminds him of one of the worst mistakes that he made in his career. And he said he keeps it there because it helps him to remember what it is to do something terrible just for money. And he says the reason that he keeps that in his office is because after doing the Batman and Robin movie, he committed himself to actually being more intentional about the roles that he takes and then asking for more control of the script and moving forward like what he wanted to do in, in a different movie or something. So he keeps that every single day to remind him of something that ultimately was a growth area for him. So every day he looks at that bat suit, which was the whole movie was basically terrible, and he remembers that because it launched his career. One of the movies that he did very soon after that is Oh Brother, Where Out Thou? And so it's a movie that transform his career and move him in the right direction. But he said he couldn't have done that without having the bat suit. Oftentimes, I think when we have our bat suit community moments, we just say, oh, it's their fault, or that's a bad group of people, and I'm just going to go to the next one. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to take some ownership there. That was a terrible movie. That was a cash, that was a cash grab, and I'm going to improve on this. Think about the place that I think you probably have your most intimate moments in community with your family. And your family are the people which hopefully you have a good relationship with them. Hopefully they're the people that you love the most. But there's also, they're also the people who after a week on vacation, you guys are laughing, not me, but after a week on vacation with your family, you're like, thanks, but, you know, I'm ready to get back to my routine. You know, like, I, I appreciate y'all, but I, I'm, I'm ready to kind of get back. And, and my mom's in this room and my in-laws, so not you guys. But 
Uh, just everyone else, everyone else um, experiences that. I, I love you. So it's the people who like are our families, those who are who we're closest to, that it's challenging for us, right? It can be challenging for us. For my son, who is, is five right now, he is just a live wire all the time, running around crazy all the time, and he tests my patience from time to time, and sometimes the patience doesn't win. And as I deal with that in, in the day-to-day, I could just choose to just point at him and say, oh, it's your fault, it's your problem, why don't you do this, 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 why don't you do this? Instead of saying, no, I need to learn from this moment. And God, help me to grow in patience. I'm not going to blame my five-year-old. There's times that I need to correct him. There's times I need to do some things with him, but I'm not just going to say it's his fault. So in those moments of real community where sometimes we rub up against like our own limitations and the things that we don't necessarily like about ourselves, we have a choice to just like push those things further below. We say, God, help me to learn from this. Because I think what's beautiful about when we are in diverse communities where we have people of different backgrounds and we're interacting, and sometimes it's challenging, but sometimes it's hard, what we're able to realize is real love. That me, as I am, with my limitations, with my weaknesses, I'm still loved by somebody else. And unfortunately, if we give up too quickly, we don't get the chance to learn that. We don't get the chance to show that to somebody else, and we don't get the chance to experience that ourselves. Because ultimately, as I said in the very beginning, loneliness is a serious problem in our world today. And what you need to hear more than ever, is as you are, you are loved. And you don't need to just hear that. I hope you get to experience it. Because when you do, you get to realize that you are loved by your Father in heaven and loved as you are by other people. And it's in moments like Thelma Chodo's passing this week, where our hearts are all limping a little bit this morning, that we recognize the love that we had for her and the love that we have for each other. May we understand that when we feel friction at times in community, that it's an opportunity for us to grow. May we continue to pursue relationship in diverse communities anyway because it helps us to realize that we are loved by God and practicing things like forgiveness and sacrificial love, which Jesus tries to teach his disciples are most important, will hopefully be our foundation. And may we not like the idea of community more than actual real life community it's in those places that God transforms our hearts with a message of true and unbelievable love. Let's pray together.
Father, may we be willing to do the hard work of community. May we not just be in communities that look like us, but may we be willing to grow and learn from each other. Watch over us as we strive to do this together. May we allow your love to be the thing that moves us forward and that we identify with. And it's in your son, Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So typically, at the end of a sermon, we have our worship team come up, and they always do an awesome job giving us a nice um, thought to end on through song. But I wanted to try something different today, and difficult perhaps, um, because much of the New Testament is written to small house church people, and much of it is written to people who are dealing with real, live, actual problems. And in the midst of all of those things, these writers of the New Testament say over and over again what is called the one another passages. So you will do this with one another and you'll do this with one another. So 59 times in the New Testament, there's a one another.